Hi, my name is Saul and this is the story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of London as a narrative tale. In our story, we've finally reached the early 11th century and it is here we discovered London changing dramatically. It was transitioning from being a town in England to becoming the town in England. And the last chapter in this one are a special two-part episode where I try and work out what those changes were. So, in the last part, we looked at military and economic changes going on in the city. Now it's time to look at all the other factors involved. So, without further ado, welcome to Chapter 31 of the Story of London, The Birth of the Capital, Part 2, A Shire Unto Itself. As London became more important for the central organisation of the state, so it became a place where the rich and the powerful and the influential all sought to have homes there. Noble estates in London could provide a noble, be they secular or clerical, with several reasons to own them. Yes, you could stay there, but a well-placed estate could be a lucrative source of income. We know from 1017 there was a royal palace in the city. But over this whole era, the city became filled with estates owned by major nobles and churchmen from across England. It wasn't unique in this status, but more than that, it was a continuation of what had been going on since Alfred the Great moved London behind the walls. Remember, even with Mercia being long dead, the remains of the former nation of London still exerted a small but interesting influence over the city. When Alfred the Great had set up Londonborough, the one and only noble ever specifically placed in charge of London was Eerdeman Ethelred of Mercia, Alfred's son-in-law. When he'd been in charge of the land behind the walls, it had been divided up in a very Mercian way, where separate districts were very centred around differing owners and they developed their own sense of identity. As time had passed, these had become what was known as Hagger, contiguous blocks of urban land, often enclosed as a distinct unit whole unto itself. St. Paul's, for example, and the land around it, was a Hagger known as Paulsbury or Paulsburg, suggesting it had its own set of walls enclosing its own section of land. Ownership of Hagger in London showed that even a thousand years ago, this was a place where foreign investors liked to buy up real estate. We know the Church of St. Peter's in Ghent owned a part of south-east London. But almost all the landowners in London in the 11th century seemed to be from closer to home, the Abbey of Chertsey, sometime in the early 1000s, bought a hagger in London with a wharf attached to it that was exempt from all tolls, situated near a landing place known as Fishhive. Sometimes the ownership of land came about due to very dubious circumstances. The Abbey of Eli was granted some prime real estate, later called Abbot's High or Abbot's Hager, after a catastrophic domestic argument. 
you see a resident of London called Leofwine got into a blazing argument with his mother and alas smashed a log over the poor lady's head. As a penance for this deed, he gave the Abia Eli this real estate. We suspect there were a great many haggers in and around London, but our records are, alas, sketchy. And there's a very specific reason for this. In a few decades' time, William the Conqueror would compile a list of who owns what land for every square inch of England, the so-called Doomsday Book. And if you ever get to see the Doomsday Records, apparently, just before the section on Middlesex, there's a blank folio where we assume the entry for London should have gone. For reasons no one has ever been able to work out, London never appeared in the Doomsday Book, and as such, who owned what land, remains something we must try and work out from scattered fragments. What was that? Trying to work out who owns what property in London has been obscured and hidden from the general public? My, my, that's so unusual. Heaven forbid that this is like a symptom of London life that seems to be taking place for damn near the next 1,000 years. No, that would be cynical to say. Anyway, even with that, we know that rich and important individuals from outside the city held land in London. The area we today call Aldermanbury, a.k.a. Elderman's Burr, located near the former Cripplegate Fort, may well have been a secular closed estate, possibly owned by one of the more important nobles in England, for example. But these rich and noble people could not be expected to run London. That was down to the residents themselves. In this respect, late Anglo-Saxon London was basically a larger, more complex version of what we see going on in other Anglo-Saxon towns. We begin to see the genesis of institutions that represented the first real attempts at organising London. Some of these institutions, we think, began to appear in the 11th century. But like the rules on trade regulations last chapter, we are not 100% sure that they did. Many London-based institutions we know were around by the 12th century and seem to have begun in this 11th century. Let me give you an example. The Court of Hustings. A Hustings was originally an authority on weights and precious metals. In the 10th century, the only court of hustings we knew for sure existed was over in Ramsey in Cambridgeshire. But while there is no mention of a court of hustings in the 11th century in London, and it only really appears in the 12th century, I think it's fair to assume that given London's pivotal role in coin creation and monetary policy, it would be a tad obtuse to suggest there wasn't a hustings court in London during the 11th century. Some have said the Court of Hustings was a product of when Canute was in charge, because the earliest weight of metal hustings were supposed to regulate was the Scandinavian mark. But it should be noted, before the Danish kings took over, the mark was widely used in Anglo-Danish Eastern England, so it could date from earlier. I think it did have a Scandinavian origin, if nothing else, even if it started during the reign of Ethelred, the title hustings supposedly is derived from the phrase meeting of the house cards but whatever the exact date of its formation the court of hustings was a body of people charged with doing something important and in london at this time we find that bodies of people charged with doing something important seem to gather more important people and more important tasks 
as such. By the time we do get to the 12th century and we start finding records for it, the Court of Hustings had become a court of wide-ranging jurisdiction, presided over by important civic figures. In time, the Mayor of London, the Sheriffs of London, and the Aldermen. Hence why some historians like me, while not saying for sure the Court of Hustings existed in the 11th century of London, do believe it probably did. But the Hustings was not the only civic body in London. There was supposedly a more organised General Assembly of citizens, which the laws of King Edgar suggested should meet three times a year. This seems to be the origin of the London folk moots, which gathered every 16 weeks or so in St Paul's. Now again, we have no certain historical record of the folk moots actually meeting before the 12th century, but by then it was considered an old and anachronistic mechanism. So again, like the Hustings, it would not be too risky to suggest the folk moots were active during the 11th century. And if so, then it allows us to reconstruct how London organised itself. In simplest terms, London, while it was only a single town, appeared to be operating like an English shire in miniature. The Court of Hustings was basically becoming the equivalent of a shire court, and London, like a shire, it was divided into smaller subunits, the Hagger, which appear to have their own assemblies in which local grievances could be aired. These subunits eventually became the wards of London, headed by their own aldermen, and it's kind of identical to what we would call hundreds in other shires. And we can say that, as using hundreds as a unit of division of London, we date back to the era of the Peace Guild. We estimate that 22 of the wards of London began life during the late Saxon era. And it's likely the full 24, which existed until 1394, had begun already, even if we're not 100% sure. And for me, this is a wonderful, if not 100% proven, example of how the past spills into the present. When Alfred the Great set up London in its current location, by giving it to Ealderman Ethelred of Mercia, it meant that like a Mercian shire, the land behind the walls was divided into smaller blocks of land. These in turn became the haggers, the small regions which could be bought or sold and above all invested in, and these in time became the wards of London a system of organisation and government that continues in the city of London to this day. The 11th century then appears to be a time when London began organising itself, and any administrative body that was able to survive for a few years had the opportunity to become a tradition and benefit from this over the next few decades and indeed centuries. A great insight into how this process worked can be seen in the body known as the Snittas. Now, forgive me here, I am very unsure if I'm pronouncing this word correctly. As I've said before, I'm not a linguist and my old English is not very good. The word snit, C-N-I-H-T, is an old English word. And some have said it actually is the origin of the term knight. As far as we can tell, however, the original term was more accurately translated as a retainer or a servant. Literally, within the context of London, 
A snit was a man who acted as an agent or retainer of some powerful and richer non-resident of the town. So maybe they ran his household when he wasn't there, or his estate when he wasn't there. Or maybe they were just someone employed to be in London in case their employer ever needed someone there to do stuff for them or to serve them when they arrived. These snitters then had a unique position in London. They had a job representing someone who wasn't always there. What did they do when their employers were not around? Well, apparently they would meet together and get organised. Like the earlier Peace Guild, the Snitters may have started as a social club or a paramilitary club. Some records say they would fight duels together. And being as they were there in London, they seem to have been able to consolidate their positions to work together for their own mutual benefit. What do I mean by that? Well, we discovered the existence of one group of Snitters in London in a writ dating to the year 1400. This writ, however, was copied from one written out during the reign of Edward the Confessor, and that said, this quasi-guild had been formed during the reign of King Edgar. The Snitters, according to this, supposedly held extensive lands with a multitude of privileges, including soak, the power to collect fines, tithes, and obligations, usually only held by much more powerful magnates. These Snitters' property seemed to have been located mostly outside the northeast corner of the city, the later London ward of Port Soken. It appears that this group of men, who identified with one another based on their jobs, were able to pool their resources for their own mutual benefit. In 1120, for example, the descendants of this quasi-guild like structure granted some land to Holy Trinity Priory over in Allgate. In their records, we see that this land was given by the descendants of the original members of the original Snitters. Now, this again could be an example of how London was forming in this era, concessions of lands and rights being given to individuals and groups or earned via various, at times possibly dubious methods, which would later allow their children and grandchildren benefit from it. When the Minigill's lands were given over to Holy Trinity Priory, for example, the descendants of those original 13 Snittas included some of the most powerful men in the city at the time. There were moneyers, and there was a goldsmith, and an alderman, and one of the canons of St. Paul's Cathedral. Those original 13 retainers and servants had used their hard-fought privileges to build up their families, so they eventually became part of the status quo of London itself. London was indeed a shire unto itself. Men whose grandfathers had had to fight to confirm a claim on some land just outside the city had seen them use their status to gain a foot in the door of respectability and legitimacy, and their descendants were now reaping the benefit as respectable dwellers of London. Leadership in London at this time does seem to be about who you knew, not what you knew. Leadership positions involve multiple overlapping responsibilities, mixing formal titles and informal friendships. The earliest city fathers of London were less gentlemen and more godfathers, a friend of a friend, 
certain raising in social standing could lead to a raise in actual standing and rank. We look at the titles that suddenly become more important in this era. Reeves were a crucial role. They mediated between the local administrators and the royal ones, especially in regards to finance and other royal prerogatives. We know that during this era, in all probability, but only emerging from the shadows over later decades, we see a new important post come into existence, the Port Reeve of London. In 1040, for example, the Port Reeve of London and the Shire Reeve of Middlesex, or Sheriff of Middlesex, happen to have the same name. Maybe they were the same man. Another example is the Port Reeve of London, named in a writ from about 1058, was a man called Sweatman. And there was also a London moneyer called Sweatman, who was prominent at exactly the same time. Again, the suggestion here is of invisible tendrils of patronage and nepotism and friendship stretching out into the shadows of historical uncertainty. Military and legal matters also seem to be under a similar process. We know there's going to be a position created during this era called the Stallers, and they held some London-based authority. When King Canute takes power, very soon in the future of our tale, two brothers, Ansgar and Osgood Clapper, are named as Stallers and held quite a bit of power in London, while another Staller called Torrey the Proud managed to consolidate enough wealth that he rebuilt Waltham Abbey. Now, legally, London did not come under the jurisdiction of any of the nation's earldomen or earls, and as such, legally, the courts were presided over by the bishops of London. But this role and power appears to have been helped sometimes by the Stallers, and the courts were supported by the Reeves. Again, the situation where friend of a friend gets a position of power. Now the bishops were the power. They were London's only resident noble. Many of them, such as Bishop Dunstan, Bishop Theodred and Wolfston, had power and influence beyond the walls of the city. But even those who did not get elevated to high rank nationally seem to have had been given a degree of gravitas towards them. In the future, for example, one Bishop Ilfen of London was given the delicate task of successfully escorting the sons of King Ethelred into exile. Yet for all of that, London was not an especially rich diocese, suggesting that even if the title of Bishop of London rose to prominence towards the later Anglo-Saxon era, due to the crowded nature of land division in London, the bishops were not able to own vast estates within their shire as other bishops could. In terms of church influence upon London, beyond the impressive St. Paul's and its surrounding walls around Paulsbury, the most significant religious institution in London was the Abbey of St. Peter, down in what is now called Westminster. I described back in chapter 6 that the original abbey had supposedly been created back in the days of King Offer of Mercia, and I named it as his last legacy upon London. Please note, however, while that theory is popular, it's not actually backed by any archaeological evidence. It could have been added later to make Westminster seem more impressive, or there could have been a wooden church there that later building work just obliterated. 
Whatever the case, we know it was constituted, if not built completely from scratch, as a Benedictine house for 12 monks by Dunstan, then Bishop of London, in the late 950s, supported by the gift of land granted to it, which I described in some detail back in chapter 21. It was, since Dunstan established it, a reformed monastery, which meant that the monks acted like monks, and it was not some kind of wild frat house where the spare kids of Anglo-Saxon nobility could be dumped, but it remains a minor house for the first few decades of the century we're in. In 1040, long after Ethelred was buried in London, the son of King Canute, King Harold I, was buried in the abbey for a few months, and then his body was removed from its tomb, and then it was mutilated and set on fire, I think, and then dumped in a nearby swamp all by his half-brother. Still, before the end of the century, however, Westminster Abbey was to have Edward the Confessor heap lavish gifts upon it, turning it into one of the richest and certainly the most impressive churches in the country. In the 11th century, England saw a change in how Christians worshipped, with a sudden bumper crop of new churches being built everywhere, it seems. And London was no different, and this initial flurry of church building gives us some insights into the city's infrastructure. London gained an impressive number of churches, in a few centuries, a man called William Fitzstephen was to write one heck of an account of what London looked like in the 12th century, and when we get to that part of the history, I'll be dedicating an entire chapter to his guide to London. But he describes London as having 126 separate parish churches within it. Now, modern analysis and archaeology has found evidence for 108 of them, and it's probable that many of the 108 began in this late Anglo-Saxon era. Of course, due to the building of a city on top of the remains, plus, you know, the carnage caused by 1,000 years of history, fire, reconstruction, occasional blanket bombing, we can only find one church, all hallows and barking, that we can certainly say we can see the Anglo-Saxon elements easily. But there are traces to be found in St. Bennet Finks and over at St. John the Baptist upon the Walbrook. 27 of the 108 churches modern archaeologists have examined have archaeological traces to around 1100, but hardly any date to 1000, which says either A, London's many churches originated in the next century, or B, that before this date, they were mostly made of wood, and that wood was recycled as landfill before stone churches were put on top on the sites. Some of the churches are fascinating to examine, and they really do provide insights as to how London was growing. St Bride's on Fleet Street is a fascinating example to look at. It was located outside the city walls, just across the River Fleet from the city itself. It does not seem to have been intended to be a parish church. It was at first a modest stone chapel, and there was found below it a tiny body of a stillborn baby gently laid to rest in a small stone coffin. This, coupled with its very unusual dedication to the Irish Saint Bridget, plus other archaeological evidence, suggests that maybe this could well have been a family chapel 
that became an 11th century parish church. St Andrew Holborn we mentioned as existing before way back in chapter 26 where it was a described as a wooden construction and it was referred to as old in its description at the time so we've no idea when that was first built. All Hallows in Lombard Street on the corner of Gracechurch Street came about because a man called Brithmir at Gerscherecki Brithmir of the Thatched Roof Church gave some land to Christchurch in Canterbury between 1052 and 1070 and he built what was to be All Hallows as a private chapel on his own property originally. So like St Bride's, what started as a private church eventually became a parish church. At least nine of the churches whose origins date before 1066 have names that point to local landowners and wealthy folks constructing private chapels that would in time become used by the growing communities around them as the Hagger became the wards. Because make no mistake, during the later Anglo-Saxon era, London was growing. Not just by people having babies, but because more and more people seemed to be moving there. There were many reasons to come to London. Access to markets brought possibility of employment and perhaps, eventually, enrichment, especially to those with resources, contacts or desirable skills. If it was anything like what we later saw in the medieval period, then the urban population would have seen quite a rapid turnover. And regular visitors may have gone from visitors to extended stays. After all, the place was safe from Vikings. Warriors could have found good employment. And others may have come to London because of a connection to their lord's business, like the Snitters. Not all who moved to London seemed free to be able to do so. One large category of peasants whose population we see increase are the Giburus, known in Latin as the Inati. Their titles suggest their birth at a specific location entitled their landlord to some claim over them. It sounds a little bit like second-generation slavery. In principle, they should not have been able to relocate, but it turns out they often did. But don't think it was because they woke up one morning and went, sod working in this field, I'm off to find my fortune in the big city. Towns were not bastions of liberty. The national status quo always prevailed. We know over in Belgium, in the town of Huey, that town had a rule issued about the same time that said anyone entering a town who could be proven to be a slave should be returned to their owners. London may have had a similar rule. So any peasant migration was probably done at the orders of their lords or with the knowledge of their lords. The growing town of London now began to properly resemble its ancestor Londonwick at its height. By today's standards, it was small, cramped, dirty and smelly. But new houses were springing up, London Bridge existed and the whole place was expanding. We have identified the remains of 150 late Anglo-Saxon buildings in central London. Most of them are like their earlier cousins, fairly small single-storey buildings in need of regular replacement and prone to chronic filth and occasional fire. But differing residents had differing needs and you can see this in some quality buildings. Some buildings actually had glass windows and others set back from the street had extensive cellars, presumably for storing merchandise. The biggest change from Alfred's original town, however, was not the quality of the housing, but the quantity. We discussed the 10th century street plan all the way back in chapter 14. 
but the majority of London's medieval street plan originated in this 11th century, expanding northwards. What emerged was a tendril pattern of streets which branched out from the more grid-like pattern of Alfred's London. The growth suggests a natural and organic expansion rather than any plan. Many streets emerged from West Cheap, which was later to be known to as Cheapside, and these new streets seem to be based around traders in single commodities moving into them, hence you find Milk Street, and Bread Street, and Wood Street, and so on. We can see on the ground that the development that Alfred had originally envisioned had grown. If we take the fact that the modern shoreline is a good bit further into the river than it was during the Anglo-Saxon period, the centre part of London was the road running from East Cheap all the way to St Paul's, while the furthest north London really went was West Cheap or Cheapside. So during the 11th century, we start seeing homes and businesses began to flourish around Paulsbury up to Ludgate, north of West Cheap up to Aldersgate, Cripplegate and Moorgate, and a huge swathe of development eastwards to Aldgate and along the southeast corner of the city. In fact, it's easier to say where in the City of London there wasn't increased building. The region around Newgate was still grassland, we think, and where the Walbrook crossed under the walls, the area between Moorgate and Bishopsgate, and partly beyond that, this seemed to still arguably be rural land stood behind those massive and imposing walls. As well as new areas, existing areas were more thickly built up too, alleyways serving many buildings set back from the street frontage proliferated as the city grew and the population filled. The resulting maze of streets owes nothing to the Roman construction of this city. This was a new London born in the Anglo-Saxon era and it would dictate how the city looked all the way through the medieval period. If we look at just one site, one poultry on Cheapside, we can see how this development took place. The site was settled from about the year 900, maybe a little earlier. Buildings were fairly spread out for the first 100 years or so. Towards the end of the 10th century, there was a change in character for the region. Many buildings went up lining the street frontage completely. And these buildings indicate diverse trades moving into this region. And there was a bone worker, a metal worker, a leather worker who made shoes, and somebody called Ilfuret carved their name into a piece of bone. Meanwhile, Southwark and Westminster blossomed as London's principal suburbs, and a ribbon of habitation started to snake between Westminster and London. Along the riverfront as well, demand for land and access to the river stimulated land reclamation just outside the Roman river wall, along the shores of the Thames. This process had to be maintained every few decades throughout the 10th century, and we see reclamations of strips of land stretching down to the river from what is now Lower Thames Street, which was probably the shoreline once. By the 11th century, this reclaimed land was now wide enough to accommodate a significant number of buildings on it. And at some point between the years 1016 and 1066, part of the river wall collapsed, allowing houses develop in the remains. This land reclamation 
was filled with wood, which gives us traces of many ships used in London in the 10th and 11th century. There's an extraordinary variety of differing types, and they expose the close contact between London and Northwest Europe. The ships that were broken up in London and used to reclaim land from the river reveal via their construction techniques and the timbers used that many of them originated overseas from the Netherlands, from the Baltic and Scandinavia. I mean, we found the remains of one gigantic Frisian ship. It was 18 meters in length and it was cut up and reused to make landfill at Bull Wharf. Digging into the detritus and archaeological remains of late Anglo-Saxon London, we have discovered much about the residents. We know their diets seem to be quite diverse. It appears they consumed wheat, plum, cherry, sloe, blackberry, elder, hazelnuts, and that they cooked sheep and pigs, cows and fish and they even enjoyed a healthy amount of oysters and mussels. We found a golden brooch that had been made in Ottonian Germany in the soil below Dowgate Hill. Silk garments were found in a house in Milk Street, but this was not an elite property, so they could well have been prized possessions of some up-and-coming artisan. We have found coins and seals from as far away as Ireland, Norway, Germany, Belgium, and even distant Byzantium. There is an account of London from a traveler from Iceland. He was leaving his Scandinavian colonized land of harsh weather and bleak vistas, literally a land of fire and ice, and making his way south, out of the North Sea and towards the warmer climes in Europe. Along his journey, this man visited the port of London during this era. Just over a thousand years ago, he gives us a description of London in the early part of the 11th century. He paints for us a picture of a heaving and busy docks where merchants from towns like Rouen and Liege plied their wares. Other merchants from Flanders and Normandy and even more exotic destinations all around them. He describes how they would pay fixed tolls to sell their goods, trading in wool and cloth, planks, melted fat and fish. And in return, from their profits, they would buy pigs and sheep for the journey homewards. London was to see King Æthelred die there in 1016 and be buried there in April of that year, formally marking him as the first king to be buried in London since King Sebai of Essex, all the way back in the 7th century. Over the previous chapters, I have described how London as a community was during this era able to take matters into its own hands at occasion, that it was large enough and influential enough or just plain stubborn enough that it acted like it had its own agency to just do things without waiting for noble permission. How it was basically becoming a kingdom unto itself and it is in the next few years that we will see that. London was to remain the body that kept King Æthelred in power arguably longer than he should have, the last body in England to desert him and the first to reinstate him. But it goes beyond that. 
The king's son and heir, Edmund Ironside, was only made king of England because of the Bogwara of London, the citizens of the city. Indeed, when Canute is elevated to the title of king of England in Southampton by the collective bishops, abbots and ealdormen of England, London is the leading power in supporting Edmund Ironside. But the details of that story lie in our future, and I mention it now only to give you an idea of just how pivotal London was becoming. In the 1040s, a Flemish monk described London as, quote, Metropolis Teres Populolissima, unquote, the most populous metropolis of the land. While the French writer, Guy of Amiens, described London in the following terms, quote, a most spacious city full of evil inhabitants and richer than anywhere else in the kingdom, protected on the left by walls and on the right by a river. It fears neither armies nor capture by guile, unquote. Was it the capital of England at this time? No. The tendency across Europe uh, was the status of a royal city, Places that contained palaces or royal residence the monarch would visit from time to time, as opposed to a permanent resident of a monarch, and by extension his court, and the civil management of the nation. The Saxon kings of England never based themselves in any one location, but rather travelled. As a royal city, however, London certainly was on a short list as a prominent stop-off on any royal itinerary. And here it would stand amidst its peers, places like Gloucester, Winchester, Windsor and Canterbury. But out of that short list, while Canterbury had greater religious chops and Winchester had stronger royal links, London's unique combination of explosive growth, importance to the monetary policy of the nation, growing international trade links and significance in naval defences certainly made it a community that had no peer in England at this time. So it wasn't a capital, but it sure as heck wasn't just a town. Late 10th and early 11th century Europe was favourable to towns across the whole continent. Long distance travel and commerce was increasing. And London was ideally poised to benefit in a unique way. It was a port with good river access and a nexus for trade. East-west trade along the river, north-south across the bridge. This revitalised London, basically supercharged the benefits it had enjoyed all the way back as Roman Londinium and Saxon Londonwick. The redistribution of goods, or in some cases, the working of raw materials before sending them on, emerged as one of London's primary attractions. The commodities that would make medieval London, so wool and deep-sea cod and herring, seem to have exploded just as London took off here in this era. And London became the place where those commodities were traded for, things like silver from Germany, wine from France, and silk from further east. Accessibility also played a role. King Edgar and his heirs had sought a high degree of authority across the land. London's economic centrality fit neatly within their plans. And eventually, as we said, it became the home of England's coin minting industry, which made it more important. 
which meant it hosted more meetings of the king and his advisers, which in turn drew more of the elite of England, which in turn drew more investment, which in turn increased economic demand and economic spend, which in turn drew specialist artisans and merchants from further afield, and so the cycle went. A rather unique special relationship grew from the Anglo-Saxon kings of England towards London. Each seemed to profit from their association, in sharp contrast to the rather antagonistic attitude between city and crown we find in the later medieval era. From Ethelred onwards, London was loyal to its kings, a symbiotic connection, mixing commerce and government, and the rest of the kingdom may have resented it, but London didn't care. The 11th century sees London truly begin the process that would see it become the most important city in England. And all of this is simply to help you imagine what is to come as we return to the regular story of London next week. Thank you for listening. Hope it wasn't too boring. And I do worry about such things as, hey, I'm a nerd and this stuff is my idea of fun. Anyway, scripts for the last two chapters will be available via a link provided in the description of this episode. And we'll be back next week, returning to the epic, bloody and chaotic story of London, starting now the death cycle of the reign of King Aethelred. Trust me, folks, things are about to get very messy indeed. All right, thank you.